Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I just wanted to make mention of the fact that during one of the previous episodes, I mentioned that we have a lot of listeners in Ireland, and I was curious to hear back from people from that part of the world to find out what resonated with them. And and it was fascinating to hear why. So if you have any other stories you'd like to share, please send them my way. And if there are stories you want to share on the podcast, please let us know. You can email us at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for today, I am very excited to introduce the guests for our special crossover episode. So excited, in fact, that we are releasing it a couple of days earlier than our usual Wednesday release. This interview will also be aired on the A Little Bit Culty podcast feed. Our guests today, Sarah Edmondson and Anthony Nippy Ames, are survivors of the Nexium cult and hosts of the A Little Bit Culty podcast. They are the married couple and whistleblowers documented in the critically acclaimed HBO series, The Vow. Sarah and Nippy have a lot to say about their experience and burning questions to ask people with similar stories. They're here to help people understand, heal from, and avoid abusive situations one little red flag at a time. Sarah and Nippy are also both successful actors and producers, and in 2019, Sarah published Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. Here are Sarah and Nippy. I am so happy to have Sarah and Nippy on this show. I know that you have your own show and you've told your story and Sarah, you have a book and you've been out there in the world letting people know about this. What I find so interesting, and I know we're going to go a lot of different directions with this conversation, is that while it's become sort of our life in that we talk about it a lot, there's still some people who think Nexium is a pill that you take for acid reflux. And that's their association, which I understand because it is. And that's sort of how it is to be in this world that is sort of the subculture of the world. But I wanted first to start with not only thanking you for what you're doing, but having you have a chance to introduce yourselves to people who haven't really gotten to know you on this personal level. And I so appreciate being able to have you on the show. And I know at some point I will be on yours as well. So Sarah, if you want to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Thank you for having me. I feel like this is something that is this is so full circle. You know, I think when we decided to have a podcast, we didn't really look to see what other podcasts were already out there making cult content. And then we found you afterwards. And there's obviously so much overlap. And it's so great to be aligned with somebody who's so passionate about similar things. So thank you for having us. You know, it's such a long story. I try to condense it into a little an elevator pitch slash soundbite. The long and short of it is that I'm from Vancouver, born and raised there. And I was an aspiring actress in my 20s, child of two parents who were in the mental health profession. And I was at a time in my life when I was looking for more, more meaning, more community, more fulfillment. I didn't really feel like acting was the thing that was my necessarily my purpose. I always felt that I, like my parents always taught me, you know, make the world a better place, 
have a legacy, all those things that I think are important. And I happened to meet a filmmaker, Mark Vicente, who made What the Bleep Do We Know, who introduced me to a program. I wanted to work with him. The program sounded amazing. It was all about humanitarians learning to, again, make the world a better place by evolving our awareness and our consciousness and working through our patterns and our quote, put air quotes on this, our shit, so that we could be optimal in the world. And it seemed amazing. And I'd never researched it. I jumped in. I took a five-day training, which I had many red flags about, which I didn't know were red flags at the time. And I ignored them and did that for about 12 years. Uh (laughs) Had some incredible experiences, some really wonderful learnings and incredible adventures, I'll say. And also a lot of things that I didn't understand what I was looking at over the years until things got undeniably bad. And when uh, what when one, one of my incredible adventures, just to backtrack for a second, was meeting my husband, who's here with us today, Nippy, and we had a child. And that helped me kind of reconnect with who I am and my values, a little bit separate from the organization. At that point, they tried to draw me in further and have me get more committed, which eventually led to the leader starting a secret organization for women where he was branding women with his initials. And that ultimately wasn't what woke me up. It was realizing that the symbol was not what I'd been told it was, but was his, in fact, his initials. All of these things are very, very complicated and hard to explain, but the essence of it is that it woke us up. Nippy and I decided to leave eventually to become whistleblowers, go on the cover of the New York Times. The FBI got involved from that point, and now the leader's in jail for 120 years. That's the best summary I can I can say. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yes. And there, you know, when someone said that he was in jail for 120 years, I remember just spontaneously saying, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> he also has five years probation. Oh, five years. Okay. It's my favorite part of the sentence. <laughs> I love that. So after he's about 200 years old or so, then he gets five years probation. That's good. That'll be good. Yeah. I wanted to say something before Nibby, you introduced yourself, there's something so interesting about not picking up on the red flags that I want to make sure that we talk about. And I know we're also going to focus in on being a couple within a group like this, because that's something I haven't talked a lot about on this show yet, and people haven't had a chance to talk about, but how how couples are treated and how couples are kind of sometimes separated emotionally and or physically or in terms of being able to trust each other and lean on each other. And I think sometimes it's because they strengthen each other to make a change. So yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. And also in terms of being parents and the education that you want to make sure your kids have because of your experiences. The other thing too is in terms of the red flags, because I've now been doing this a while, there are times that I will hear something and I know it doesn't sound very professional, but I just go, ew, I haven't And the ew, I remember learning about V Week and this whole, you know, celebration in honor of Vanguard of the leader. And I thought, wow, I can't imagine. I don't even like when people sing happy birthday to me in a restaurant. I don't like all eyes on me, but to have a whole week for my birthday. Wow, that was an ew to me. And, you know, there are a lot of these moments where you think someone just is this insatiable, needy kind of pit. And you just have to keep filling the coffers of their ego over and over again. And it's, it's fascinating to me and so sad. And for for so many, this is the personality they have to deal with. And sometimes they've been exposed to for the first time when they get involved in a group like this, like they don't know what they're dealing with. Yeah, that should have been a red flag for sure. (laughs) Well, it was also sold as a corporate retreat. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Can I share something before we interview, before yeah, yeah, we yeah. introduce sure. Nippy? Because uh-huh. Nippy, weren't we just talking about that? How like when we were in it, had you said that to us, my defense would have been what we were told, which is, oh, Keith didn't even ask for this. We decided to do this because he's in renunciate. He doesn't receive gifts. His only request for his birthday is that people are kind to each other and people live joyfully. And why not do that for 10 days versus one day for his birthday? So this is our gift to him. He would, he never asked because he's so humble, right? Like, right? And if like this, it would be pitched as like, this is our corporate retreat where we give him a gift to say thank you for what he's given us, right? So that's, it's even, even grosser than you thought. <laughs> I, I, I think it was sex week for him. Interesting. Okay. That's, that's sex my, 10 my, days. Yeah, that's my, my take on it. Right. It very often happens, and I know for Nippy's, I, I would like to actually introduce myself. Um, well, I'm all right. <laughs> okay. Well, but anyway, uh, what I do think is interesting too is that if you can have things turned around where you think it's for people's benefit, or if you can have things turned around where you think it was your decision, then a lot of people get away with a lot of things if they can reframe it as being quite the opposite in terms of intention and whose idea it was and who it's for. And so that's true in social realms. That's true in politics. That's true in government. That's true in cults, true in relationships. Actually, it's just, you know, cults don't invent these things. They just use, they utilize what's already being used. But it is true if you can make people feel like they're in this sort of benevolent way, wanting to give back or wanting to give, then they won't see. People tend to curb your skepticism at that point. Right. And and people who are good at this, who have honed their skills, will know what language to use to offer you so that that's your interpretation. And then you're open to doing it and thinking it's perfectly innocent and kind of you to do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Nippy, introduce yourself. So, it's Anthony Nippert. Ames. Nippert is my mom's maiden name. It's Nippert with a T at the end. And my parents thought it'd be cool to call me nippy. Jury's still out on that. <laughs> um, my journey into this whole thing was I had an, a, a former uh, girlfriend I ran into at a party in New York and she told me about it. And I literally said to her, I'm not doing your cult. After a year, she was just like, this would be you. She knew she she knew the meat hooks for me because I always had books on leaders and, and I played quarterback in college. I was always reading about how to be the best and I had books on Kennedy, Martin Luther King and all that stuff. So I think she saw me as a good candidate for wanted to be better. And she was right. I mean, and finally she told me that her parents had done it. I'd known her parents since I was 15. I thought, kind of thought, how bad could it be? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I had read a book by this guy named Bill Bennett. It was called The Death of Outrage. And it was really honing in on how people just didn't have a problem with Bill Clinton's behavior. Remember those days? <laughs> and so I was just, you know, I was kind of young and I was like, you know what, this this is actually a good point. And so I had kind of fertile ground, I had those kind of things going on. So it was a good cocktail of like, hey, let's see if there's something else out there. Now, I went there and was immediately turned off by Vanguard sashes and bowing. And those were always things I never really kind of got over, but was kind of like, It's something about the organization I don't like, but there's a lot of good here. And I stayed involved with the organization from 2001 to 2003 peripherally because I was going back from New York City to Albany to take classes on weekends. And finally, I just kind of felt like there's no infrastructure for these ideas to catch on because there's no one here that's really a strong leader to get it going. And it felt kind of like a ragtag organization. I decided to not be a coach anymore, but I was still friends with like people in the organization. It wasn't a volatile breakup and I would maybe talk to some people peripherally here and there. And I took a training again in like 2005. I was involved with the organization. I would just take a training like 
anyone would have like a goals program. And then Mark Vicente, same filmmaker, came out to L.A. because I was living in L.A. Uh, I got cast in something out there and he came out and said that he had a film project for me to work on. They flew me back to New York, took my car, paid for everything, paid for my housing for a while to go shoot this film. It ended up never happening. Tell them about the helicopter. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a whole pre-production where I got on a helicopter, flew down the Hudson, went to Bergdorf Goodman, got you know, pre-production for a suit, wardrobe, all that stuff. So I didn't really have any reason to not think it was going to happen. So anyway, these are all the things that kind of like got me back into the organization. Now, understand, I came back into the organization still with some arm's length problems with it, but not to the point where I was going to throw the whole thing out. Also, I was somewhat eating my words because I didn't think the organization was grown. And in the three years, it had grown considerably. It had grown to Mexico City, Monterey. And so and it had a lot more credible people and people who are out in the world doing things. So I was kind of impressed with the growth that had happened in the three years that I was gone and going, this merges two worlds, personal professional development. And I had a lot of actors and directors in it. So I thought, wow, this, this thing's actually working. This is a train I might want to get back on. And slowly over time, as the film didn't happen, I got involved with the New York City Center and I started running that. And that was about in 2009, 2010. So there was a lot of positive things. But the reason I say that I had those boundaries at first is I think that's one of the things that allowed Sarah and I to kind of have a wall around us. Because I think I kind of communicated in a certain degree to the inner circle, like, leave me the fuck alone on a subtext kind of thing. And I think that was one of the things that allowed us to make the pivot when we did when the abuse was had washed up in our personal lives. And so while there had been some rumblings about Keith's behavior in the past, all those things became true once I experienced it. It was a pretty easy pivot for us to leave when that happened and everything's documented subsequently. So, so interesting. You, you know, you bring up interesting points about what leads someone into an organization, what causes them to stay. And often it, it, it is the connection to people, the ideas that you like, that you think are going to be practically useful. People also like to be challenged. And so you get into this mode of wanting to learn and wanting to show what you've learned. The idea, though, that from the start, things bothered you is really important and that you were able to specify to a certain degree the things like the vanguard and you said the the sashes and the bowing. Yeah. So the sashes are so interesting because it is this way of needing to prove yourself in a public way and moving up the levels. And what I've noticed from, you know, cult after cult, there are always levels. And then when you reach the top, of the level, then they add more levels. <laughs> then there's an inner circle. Then there is another group. Then there is something else you're supposed to achieve or be chosen for, or you become an instructor. You're never done. You can't graduate. Right. And if you graduate, you graduate to the next level or the next thing they have in store for you. And what's so interesting too, is I think a lot of people don't realize how cults are often usually organized to a point that there is some structure, but they also create it as they go. And so there's a disorganization to it where you can kind of see almost the machinations. You can see sort of the leadership thinking, okay, what can we concoct next? And to feel in retrospect, like you were sort of part of the experiment never feels good. But I wonder in those moments, did you feel like with Vanguard Week, with the sashes, with the bowing that, and this is the social psychological piece, did you feel like you couldn't say that it bothered you or that it it was wrong of you to be bothered by it because other, other people didn't seem to be? So 
I think that Nexium and the leadership, specifically Keith and Nancy, very brilliantly, I say that in air quotes, preempted people right from the beginning to say, like on day one of our five day, you know, you're all successful people, they call it double binding, right? All successful people know that they have areas to grow, correct? Yes. You already agree you're here to grow. And when you're facing those areas, it's going to be uncomfortable. There's truth in that. Like when you hit up against your shit, it's uncomfortable to work through it. So when we, when you're uncomfortable, it means there's something there inside you to look at. Like you see the sashes, for example, they would say often people with authority issues are uncomfortable with that because of whatever happened in their childhood. And they see somebody wearing a sash who's a higher rank and they feel uncomfortable. They don't want to wear a sash. We're here to work on that. If this piece of fabric is bothering you, don't you think that's going to affect you in your life? Oh, wow. (laughs) Right? So then if I go like, yeah, I don't want to wear this fucking sash, then I'm like, I have an issue. Versus if I had clarity now, I would say something like, I'm not going to enter this program where you're an authority over me and I don't get to trust my own instinct and my own inner voice and I now give everything over to you. That's a problem and that's a sign of a cult. Goodbye. Like, right? Now (laughs) now I know what I'm looking at, but then I'm like, oh shit. Like I have, and so many of the things are, if you don't want to call Keith Vanguard, then like you're a suppressive because you don't want to honor what he built. It's like not calling it. Why wouldn't you call a doctor a doctor? He's earned the doctor title. Why wouldn't you call the judge a judge or sir or sergeant or whatever? That's a title that they've earned. This is what Keith has earned. Why wouldn't you call him that? If you don't, then there's... Yeah, it became like, an obedience club. Yeah. So people who weren't obedient got weeded out. And what I learned about myself through this whole thing is that I'm outwardly obedient I want to be a good girl. I've always wanted to be a good girl. I want to get the gold star. I want to be special. I loved the ranks because I got to like, you know, it's like brownies. You know, I want to get the next sash. I wanted the special outfit. I wanted that acknowledgement. But inside, I was like, fuck that a lot, to a lot of things. I mean, everyone, everyone was. We were all like, I mean, we were overtly. Well, you uh, were overtly I, fucked out about things. And that's yeah. why they called you defiant, right? Yeah, they gaslit me. Tried to. Yeah. So Nippy was always defiant. I was controlling. Like if I tried to express anything about anything that I didn't like, it was me being controlling. Well, I mean, it was also different too because you were a center owner and I wasn't. So they would hold like promotions over me and be like, you need to work this. And I'd be like, fuck that. Um, My attitude was cut my pay. I wasn't making anything, but Sarah was making money and she had a center owner. So, you know, they could leverage things over Sarah differently than they could for me. I mean, I just didn't have that kind of buy-in and it was just different. I'm not saying, you know, my indoctrination and and the level of indoctrination that I was susceptible to was just different. Now, had I been making money, I think we would have probably, I would have butted heads with them more because I would have been fighting to keep the money more and my defiance. I never felt good putting certain aspects of myself in the back seat and not letting it go because we were a company about standing up for shit. And if it wasn't going on in the company and I saw it, I didn't let it go. So I was in Sarah's ear and Mark Vicente's ear all the time going, that's not fucking right. That's not right. That's not right. And I kind of had the liberty to do it. (laughs) You figured out also who you could talk to. Like one of the biggest challenges is I couldn't talk to anyone downline, anyone below me in rank because that's bad leadership, you know? And I, if I went up, I would get gaslit, except with maybe like Mark, with Mark Vicente, and I could speak pretty openly. But with other people, other leaderships, other like coaches, or even Nancy, like if you said anything, it would be like, why do you feel the need to say that right now? You seem reactive. Why don't you journal on that or go get an EM and then we can discuss it. Right. Okay. So, so interesting. So having the, the vantage point of working with Thousands of different groups, right? Not just thousands of people, but thousands of different groups. They're almost identical in this way. 
It is really amazing. It's like the cult leaders have read the same yeah. manual. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I think to a great degree, it's because they have the same personality disorder. So it manifests in the same ways. Yeah. Right. And really what they're saying is, I can't handle any criticism, but I'm not going to say it like that. I'm not going to have a tantrum that's obvious. Instead, I'm going to make you wrong for holding me to anything that I said that might have been contradictory to having an opinion, to having a negative emotion about it. And so I'm going to build into the system this sort of zone of protection for my ego where you need to then look inward because all you're doing is you're holding a mirror up, but they don't want to look. So then you're wrong. Well, they'll get someone else to tell you that you're wrong too. They'll get, right. There is usually the hench man, hench woman, hench people who are the ones who do that. That's very true. If it's a man, they normally get a woman to do it because Mm -hmm. it's softer. And I don't suspect women to be that way. I just don't, generally speaking. It's normally, generally, I'm not saying women can't be, but generally it's a man with mommy issues who's doing the stuff and he uses and abuses women to go do his bidding. Those are the patterns generally that we've seen. It's true. Yeah. Like with Rajneesh and other people who had women doing. Yeah. And it and it happens often also with this group, La Luz del Mundo. That was also how it was mm-hmm. with. Um, oh, that's and, one I've never heard of. So I'm surprised, oh. there's, I'm surprised there's a call that I've never heard of at this point. <laughs> Check it out. Check it out. Yeah. The, the person in charge, the head pastor. Um, who is the son of God, of course. Of course. Of course. course. Um, God had a lot of kids. (laughs) And now he's, you know, uh, in jail. But for, and should be for longer, I wish it were 150 years. So I'm wondering also about the things that you were called, because I find sometimes the things that people are called are so um, sort of sex differential, like misogynistic. A lot of the women are called controlling or manipulative. And the men, I think when they're, they might be considered hostile or defiant and you know, that somehow that is threatening. A lot of people leave wondering about these things about themselves. So what else were you called while you were there or diagnosed with? I was also diagnosed with like me disease. I remember the first time I had my, it was called having your life issue elicited where, and I actually had it done in front of the class. Nancy did it in front of the class as a demo. And so she does it like on a big, like post, like on the whiteboard and you can like rip off the sheet so you can keep it forever. I still have it actually. And so they ask, what was your uh, worst moment, worst decision, best ally, worst opponent? And when she asks those questions and she listens to it, she looks at it and goes, just tells you what your life issue is. And basically at that point, and the life issue evolves as you evolve. So it might change over the 12 years. But at that point, she basically said, you have the capacity to be a great leader, but you have to stop caring what people think about you. And I really actually related to that. And I think there's truth in it because I did care so much what people thought. And that's something that was like what I wanted to work on. And that was also very inhibiting as an actor. And ironically, I had to really get over that to do what we did 12 years later, put myself on the cover of the New York Times and all the shit that that would take and what people would think of me, you know, some positive, some negative. But like, you know, if you don't read the full article or watch The Vow, just some dumb idiot who got, you know, branded in a sex cult. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and there's people who think that and I have to really not care to do what we're doing right now. So it's ironic, but it was also used against me. I was called, uh, God, Nippy, what you might remember better. But the main the main thing was it was my control. I would micro, I was micromanaging. I would get in trouble for like the way that I led my center and that I wasn't leading well because I wouldn't let things fail because I wanted things to be so perfect. So then if I didn't let things fail, then other people wouldn't grow. So I was like always trying to like 
get in there and and do things myself, like not train people properly for them to do it because they would have to fail and I didn't want it to fail. And like they literally told me I had to leave my center and leave and move to Albany so that I could let everyone fail, like literally let the center crumble. And that's how it would grow. It wasn't so much we were called stuff as much as when you were thought of as a person, your issues were the thing that were most prevalent. So like if Rachel came in and like, how's Rachel doing with her lichen disease or so her pride it wasn't deepening your humanity of someone it was objectifying someone based on their issues so when you came in and you were staffing my training i would know that your pride issues were a thing that i was be looking for to help you shit like that and people were talked about that way yeah like so and so oh she's doing her tantrum they're just doing their tantrum thing or like their right wrong thing like people who are very into being like right all the time um and there was you know like active truthful things like we all struggle with the stuff term in our the lives. term was issue-fied yeah we were issue-fied issue-fied and wow and, and and there'd be things and also dependency so like this is something that came up uh, i was only with nippy well not only i was with somebody else for the first three years then i was single for a year and then it was with nippy so like the past the last chunk i was with nip and then it was things like you know me being with nippy i was like just covering my deficiency so like we have these deficiencies that we like then we look for in the outside world to cover it. So I was happy. Nippy and I were happy together, which meant that my deficiency was covered. It wasn't joy. It was just that like, I'm filling the hole, <laughs> like not even metaphorically. Like <laughs> There was always something you could be working on. Regardless. Yeah, but we'd get in shit for that. Like, and I'm like, wait, how it like, so is that why no one's in relationships? Because they don't want to cover their deficiency. That's why all the women were single. Because yeah. they were, that's what we thought, that people were working on their issues. He was helping them grow and being in another relationship was bad for them because it wasn't with him. That's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. He basically had to keep people single so he could get in there. And then later we found out when we were leaving from someone who left before us that if you wanted to leave without getting in trouble, which we thought we were doing at first, <laughs> was that we had to use our issues as the reason. So later as we got closer and our bond was better, and we, you know, we had a, you got married and had a kid, then I had dependency issues. So that was another thing I was called as being too dependent. And so we used that as our exit, is we made it look like we sort of staged this elaborate plan. I don't know if you got to that part in the book, but it, yeah. 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 I mean, what's so interesting about that part in the book, I mean, it is elaborate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's genius that you were able to to work it in that way because you've had you had to learn the system and see what would work and when and how to plan it. What I find so interesting about that as I was reading that and now hearing you talking, is that it can never be that the reason you're leaving is because something is wrong with the organization. So then it has to be because of your issues and it's always you. And there are some people who really do believe that when they leave and they will come to me saying, I am this and I have this and this is what's wrong with me. And none of those things are true. But they have taken them on or they had to because they really did believe or they were convinced that's the way you grow and this is the way you really learn about yourself and are humble enough to really look inward. And so I I think so much of this is just manufacturing content so that they can help you with all these issues they then told you you have. And so it would be like a doctor giving you a whole variety of diagnoses so that can pay for more treatment or same thing with fraudulent therapists who I talk a lot about who will say, well, you have this issue and that issue and this, so that you're dependent on them and the work keeps going. But I think it's really important to be able to get to that point where you can say, actually, no, I think that we're unhappy, not because of us. Yeah. Uh, And, (laughs) but there isn't a space to say that there safely. No, 
No, it never is. And ironically, Keith actually taught a class called Shifter that exposes that exact pattern, even how like companies do it where they'll, they'll like cause a problem in the environment and make money. Pharmaceutical companies. And pharmaceutical companies like cause a problem and then make money from the cleanup of the problem as well as the creation of the problem. <laughs> and so that's exactly what was happening in in Nexium, there I t- couldn't agree more. And actually, part of my therapy, and I'm still in the process of it, is like accepting who I am as a person. Like it's not control. I'm. <laughs> I mean, yes, I can be. I can micromanage, right? Like I can. That's putting I, your skill set in a negative light. Exactly. I have a skill set, and I think that's also a little bit why they kind of left me alone to a degree. Like I didn't get head fucked in the way that many people did. Likewise, because I was a recruiter. I was bringing in so many people. So I think to a certain degree, they wanted to keep me. And you were bringing in Keith's girlfriends. And bringing in women. I was a pipeline. I mean, not on purpose, obviously. Let that be clear. I didn't know that. But I was a pipeline for him. He knew that. He knew that. Like when we, the first time I showed up in Albany with a few of my girlfriends, everyone was joking about like how, like people like Sarah, do you have any unattractive friends? Like I was just showing up with all these beautiful actresses. I didn't realize why they were so excited. Wow. It's so, uh, 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 you know, uh, right. It is a uh, heartbroken. It's, it's so hard because, you know, the, the problem in these situations is that the person who's left feeling guilt is not the one who created the system and not the one who deceived you into participating in it unwittingly. I think it's so interesting too, when you're saying that you're still working on this in therapy, so much of it is sort of peeling off what's real and what isn't. One of the things that I find helpful with my clients is understanding why that person or why that organization needed for you to believe that about yourself, how it served them, how it doesn't serve you, and it might not be at all accurate about you. I'm wondering how you were kind of motivated to see each other as human beings and the process that you've needed to go through just as a couple to kind of almost re-meet each other without that lens that you were given to look at each other through. That was the Nexium lens. Hmm, That was a great question. Do you want to tackle this one? I think there was Sarah and I building a company together. If you had met me in 2010 through 2015, 16, I said, uh, I'm working for a company that works in personal professional development. It's a goals program. And that's what we were doing. And so our lifestyle was, I was in New York, LA, Vancouver, and flying all over the place, running trainings. It looked actually pretty exotic and fun from the outside. And that's what Sarah and I did. Sarah and I weren't in the clutches of the inner circle in Keith. Until the end. Well, I wasn't. Yeah, but no, I'm... You know, I mean, you you got brought into that DOS thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But we lived a lifestyle that looked on the outside like it was fun. And Sarah and I were able to do that because we weren't, in Albany, but I don't know, three times a year, four times a year, a little bit more at the end because I was, we were running other trainings and stuff like that, but we were running companies is what it felt like and growing them. Um, so you had two sets of ethics, one around Keith and one that, you know, in the companies that he ran. It wasn't until probably the last six months, a year of our participation in it when Sarah got involved with DOS, where I feel like our relationship was being stressed in ways by forces that I didn't necessarily know and where they were coming from. And it wasn't until after I realized that our relationship was stressed because there's an old adage in chiropractic, I've said it a bunch of times, you don't know how much pain you're in until it's gone, right? And 
once we were out of the clutches of that, I was able to kind of get a sense of, holy shit, we were near some dark stuff and our relationship wouldn't have lasted had we stayed involved in that. And it would have been because of the people that were triangulating, making Sarah's issues, my problem, my issues, her problems. We weren't going to each other to help each other thrive. It was more we were going outside our relationship to people that didn't want to see us thrive. Actually, a really good point. Like we didn't realize that the people that we were going to for coaching didn't want us to be together. It was Keith's plan to break us up ultimately and tried in different ways. I mean, Rachel, to, to get your head around, like in 2018, August of 2018, we spoke with um, someone that was doing the investigation in Keith and we were privy to the mountain of evidence that was coming against Keith that he didn't have access to yet. Yet their lawyer, this guy Agnifilo, was in interviews discrediting Sarah and I in our relationship, saying, well, well, Sarah and Nippy's relationship isn't all that it was meant out to be. So that told me that, number one, that was their angle. And I was laughing because if that's all they got, but they went to all the people that were helping us that we confided in confidentially. And we're like, here's what's going on in the relationship here. But the things that were going on in relationship were caused by them, right? So that's the way they kind of had leverage. And I don't know what they were going to say. I mean, they would have said thing that goes on in any relationship. But they didn't realize that out of the relationship, we're two independently pretty strong people and we were going to thrive no matter what we were in. And that's what they were contending with at that point. And so they had reason to be scared of us. So they had to discredit that. And Nagnifilo being what lawyer, doing what lawyers do, which whether you like it or not, you know, is shitty. With this shake, they had to shake that foundation. But like that's anything what they else, had to attack. Yeah. And I felt like if that's your if that's your only card, good luck. Because there's rape and pedophilia coming down on your docket. On your side. <laughs> and it, all you can say is Sarah and Nippy aren't the perfect couple. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sure. Right? Could, I, I could have told you yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> can I add something to, in regards to your last question? Rachel, because yeah, I think yeah, please. in terms of like art, the healing that we've had to do, I think one of the most, and this wasn't just with us, I think it was all couples and well, everyone is that one of the most insidious things about the teaching is that we as humans, like this is like on day one with this module called honesty and disclosure, they have you write up your list of needs and everyone has like obviously survival needs and then things that they think they need in their life. And basically by the end of the module, you learn that only survival needs are needs. Everything else, love, connection, community, relationship, career, success, joy, children, all those things are not needs, but desires, which means they're based on your inner deficiency, things you think you need to be okay. So Yes, it's helpful to know I don't need those shoes to be happy, right? But like, it's very toxic if you believe that everything else you want past survival is a deficiency based on your deficiency and, and something you need to overcome. It behooves Keith to have people who let go of their career, who let go of their desire to have children. And so I was constantly being hammered about like my attachment to wanting to have kids. And I think for us as a couple, we've had to relearn, and this is what therapy has been great for us, is to teach us that like, it's okay for me to want to connect with Nippy or want to feel like he's there to support me emotionally. Like almost all of my EMs came down to like, what is support? And what am I going for in the outside world? And what am I, what do I not do for my, like basically I had to become more self-reliant and not ask for anything from him, right? And that's a major, major problem in a relationship because it's not how relationships actually work in reality. We're still learning this. So to answer that question, I think that like when we were in it, yes, we were building and it was fun and it was exotic, but like we weren't relating in a normal, healthy way. We were, we barely knew each other and we were so busy. We never had time to date. Like we never went on dates. We never like just hung out. We were like, I was always 
on the phone or building the next intensive or filling trainings. Not a good partner, not a good present partner. Nippy still has to be like, can you stop and sit on the couch and just chill out with me? I'm like, it's really hard. <laughs> You're like, in another two and a half hours, uh, just give me a minute. Yes. Right. So I think, you know, so much of what happens is that the group itself, especially if it if it was getting in your head about what kind of person you are and what you're up to, and in terms of your relationship, then how can it be a healthy one if you're both up to things? And if you're both all these other diagnoses, then you almost have to like exercise Nexium out of your relationship so that you can see each other and you can learn who the other person really is and you can have your natural reactions to things without wondering, oh, is it okay that I'm thinking that and should I be? And but just be able to just breathe and know that you can be with each other in a in a more relaxed, natural way. That takes some doing. <laughs> It takes a lot of time. Also, yeah. I have to say, Nippy's so great to do this with. I'm so glad I'm not alone in this journey because he's so funny. Mm -hmm. And so so many of the things that they had us do were so ridiculous in retrospect that we have to like, we laugh about it now. Like there's there's one thing, Rachel, like if you were late for a meeting, even a minute late, you had to fill out, this is towards the later years, to fill out what's called a breach form, which was like what the infraction was. Did you ever do that? I refuse to do that. I, I did, but I, I just cut and paste from, Emiliano Salinas is because his were really good. And I was like, again, I was obediently, I was wanting to be obedient, but like, I didn't want to put in the work. So I just like cut and paste from other people, how the breach affects the group, yourself and all of humanity and what you're going to do to fix it. So you never do it again. And then later it became like penance, like what's the penance to heal the breach. And it just got like wildly out of control. So now Nippy and I joke, like he'll do something like, I don't know, not empty the dishwasher. And I'll be like, time to fill out a breach form, Nippy. <laughs> like... He, he would, he, we had the thing in SOP when, oh, it's too hard to explain, but it was basically if the men were calling out the women, all the things that were like, weren't okay. And they'd call, say fault, be like, yell fault from across the room. So now people and I will fault each other, but like, like we're on deprogramming, but we're also like laughing at ourselves. So I feel like that's healthy. So good. It's so good. And this whole idea also, just think about how full of yourself you need to be to have someone fill out a form where just being a second late, they need to think about how this not only affects them and the group, but all of humanity, really, that's a thing. And sometimes I will know when my meeting support group for former cult members was meeting in my office, and hopefully it will be again soon after the pandemic and the risk is lower that I would sometimes know when someone was new and had been involved in more of a psychological cultic group or where there had been any kind of quote unquote therapy or group therapy, because if they're running late, I used to see the light go on in my office because you click a switch and the light would go on to let, you know, let me know someone was there and then it would go off. Then it would go on. And then it would go off. Like the person was panicked. They had driven all the way to my office. So they wanted to come in, but they were so afraid of being yelled at because they were late. So I would see the light go on and off and on and off. And I'd open the door and I'd say, were you in a psychotherapy cult? Yeah. How'd you know? And it was really fascinating to see how, how you were so afraid, I think, or made to be afraid. Um, but also just to use the word obedient and also paying penance, like you had committed a crime which is so interesting to have it be like this police state, which is not at all what you signed up for. So I'm wondering in what other ways did you notice that it just became more militant in this way and it was about obedience? Everyone oh, around bad. Keith was unhappy. Mm -hmm. 
they all walked around with this look on their face like their dog just died. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And also, like, specifically military, because we the SOP training came in the last few years. If you were 10 minutes late for an SOP training, everyone, the chairs would be in lines, and everyone would be standing there, like, at attention, like, military style, staring straight ahead for as long as you were gone. So if you were gone 10 minutes, they'd be waiting for you. If started at 9, they'd be waiting for those first 10 minutes. And then you'd have to get into your spot and then... Everyone would have to wait for another 10 minutes because of your lateness. What else was militant? Oh, I mean, people became like there was a there was a couple people that literally became like the self-policing. They were acting as spies for Keith. Um, yeah. People were spying on each other. And I remember being like brought into Nancy's office to like verify whether somebody had done something or not done something. And like there was kind of like a specialness to that, you know, when you were like part of the inner like, did you hear that so-and-so said da-da-da? Is that true? Like, do, can you confirm that? Like, what do you think about that? And to be in Nancy's office, being the person who would decide, it was like, I mean, that was intense. Right. I mean, what's so interesting, too, about this is that when you're getting involved in a group like this, I think you think that you're supposed to be reaching this sort of higher level of being and a higher level of thinking and operating on this plane that has a sort of superiority to it, but where you feel like you're transcending what a lot of people get involved in and, you know, just sort of wasted time and, you know, but cults are some of the most gossipy and catty groups because I think people are jockeying for position. Uh, I think always there's this hierarchy and you can lose standing so easily. So people are kind of clutching onto their opportunities to maintain their standing or to raise themselves up. And one of the ways you raise themselves, you raise yourself up is to rat out other people because it really pleases the leadership, but they really they need the intel. And it's hard. A lot of people feel really guilty afterwards. But again, going back to where we started, they I think if you're convinced that it's for the greater good, it's for that person's benefit, it's for the group's benefit, then you feel like somehow it's good to do it. It's a lot of justification for bad behavior. Interesting. So what other justifications do you remember for bad behavior? I just think the simple thing of talking about people behind their backs in the name of their growth is a slippery slope. You can depending on the person, how you're going to use that. Early on, I didn't subscribe to the hierarchy in the organization, so I got to a point where I could teach and didn't care about being promoted. I'm not going to say I, I didn't talk about people, but the hierarchy to me was never something I felt like I wanted to go up. I just liked my domain. I had my piece in it. But to your earlier point, when you are taken out of society in the way that we are to a certain extent, now Sarah and I were, were able to get a foothold of being in the culture of society, going out and building something, and then being in the bubble of the cult. When you're in the bubble of the cult, you're extracted from really the laws of cause and effect of the world. And that's where you get your growth, your self-esteem, you get your self-knowledge about yourself, you get your adversity, all the things that will grow you, i.e. failure, adversity, maybe even a traumatic event. Those are all things that grow you and build your consciousness. So you have a group of people who have been extracted from that. And they don't have any real self-esteem. They don't really have any interface with the real world except the domain that they're in. And they're being told that they're morally superior and all that stuff. So they, entitlement gets nurtured more than their growth. But they don't really know that because they're not interfacing. So they become emotionally stunted, professionally stunted in a lot of ways, particularly if you're in there your whole life and you're in your 20s. Now, because I was in and out, I had a little bit of it. I think certain things professionally I was stunted in, but unfortunately I've had Sarah to kind of 
get me up to speed on those things and then vice versa, you know, with certain things that I feel like Sarah missed out on and that stuff. So that's where I think our relationship has been able to thrive a little bit because we've taken inventory on areas that we might be emotionally stunted in certain areas. Now, if you're in that bubble and that's the only place you've grown, your journey is going to be tough. And the more you don't acknowledge the abuse that happened to you and, and all those things, and it's, it's a gamut. If you don't do that, you're you're going to be stuck where you are for the rest of your life. And that's where we see some of the people that are, that haven't renounced it or even admitted that they've had things go on. They're incredibly stunted. When you're in that domain solely, to your point, the gossip is your currency in that group. Yeah, I definitely justified that. We'd talk about people, especially as a higher, because I got to green, like I was always talking about where people were at and what they needed to do to grow to the next level. But it did feel gossipy at times. And I felt like, is this right? Like, Well, also the subtext is, how are these people not being obedient to what we're supposed to be doing here? Yeah. That's really, that's really what it was. I mean, the gossip was, yeah, they're fine. They're working their issues, but really they were being obedient. Oh, yeah. I just going to say, I remember this one woman who was older than me and she was she was actually a coach when I started and she never got to proctor. She never got to the level where you can get paid. And in her life, she was very successful. She ran multiple businesses. She was, you know, outgoing. She got into politics. She's great, a great woman and a really wonderful woman. And I remember I like passed her in rank. And then now I'm talking about this woman who's a little bit younger than my parents, but like older than me and more mature and had more success in reality. And now I'm responsible for her promotion. And I remember like trying to get her promoted to Proctor because we want somebody like that who's successful in life to be a Proctor, be on the Proctor team so she could get paid and like go to the next level. And they were always saying how like defiant she was. And I remember meeting with her after we all left Nexium and having a little, like she got, she left, like she left with us. And, and she was like, and I was like, no wonder you never got to Proctor. You weren't defiant. You just weren't obedient because she wasn't, she pushed back on stuff. And she's like, no, that's not how it works in the real world. Like I have a business and like, that's, that's not, you know, and so they wouldn't promote her because she wasn't malleable enough. And for me to say to her, like, I'm so, like, I, that's been my, you know, apology to her over the last five years. Like, I'm so sorry that I didn't see that then and couldn't have your back in the way that I wish I could have because now I see it, but you know, I didn't see it then. These things go on in cults. But I look at what's going on politically in the world. And if you're a Republican, you speak out against the Republican Party, you're in trouble. If you're a Democrat and you speak out against the Democratic Party and you don't get in line, you're in trouble. It's a characteristic of extreme belief systems. I think it's really true. I mean, I think we we do see it all around us. And, you know, what happens again within a cult is specific to that group sometimes because of the behaviors or the language or the people. But really, the social psychology is mimicked everywhere. And we see it in politics for sure. A lot of things are coming to the fore now with trials going on and with footage that's being released where people are not looking like they're believing what the person is saying, but they know they have to go along with it because there's going to be hell to pay if they don't. And so you never quite know who you can believe and you can't get a read on them because they're pretending. So many people I've noticed who, who have left political organizations that were very intense Anything that was very strict in its ideology, anywhere where they had to please the leader, they often were feeling very differently than they let on and not happy and not in agreement, but couldn't say. So when people will say, you know, I didn't want to talk about how unhappy I was because I was the only one there who was unhappy. You're never the only one there. Right. <laughs> right? We realized that afterwards. For sure. We, yeah. For sure. Like we'd have sessions with people. We all, So many people in Vancouver just all left and we'd get together and we were just sharing our grievances. We couldn't share grievances ever. And especially later in the last years with the Jeunesse training and SOP, one of women's 
according to Keith, worst, worst traits was complaining. So anything that you said that was negative was, oh, you're just complaining. Like that's what a thought terminating cliche right there. But Claire, like we're not actually been paid for the last, do you see how entitled you are right now? Wow. Um, uh, I am entitled because I fucking earned that and I did that work. You're complaining. Go work on that with your coach. I didn't understand I was being gaslit. You know, and, and even just to get together in a room and say how we really felt when I had food poisoning and Nancy told me it was because I was breached out. I wasn't barfing because of the bad shrimp. I was barfing because I had a breach and that was my body's way. I'm like, I don't agree, but you can't disagree because then you're being defiant and then you're not going to get promoted and you can't fucking grow. So you just learn to shut the fuck up. And one of the things I think, too, it's important and the number one effects of that is, yes, you have, you know, kind of abusive behaviors when you have a grievance, but it forces people to take their morality and put it to backseat to the current dogma. Interesting. And cowardice is rewarded. Right. And so the principle that these groups profess to champion is no longer being championed. It's being usurped by the people that really want to uphold it. And they think the group is about that. So that's what leads to moral injury a lot of times because you think, fuck, this thing's supposed to be this, but I can't say this now. And But I'm supposed to toe the company line. And then once you recognize that the company line is, is undermining the principle that you're supposed to be about, that's when you have your ethical conundrum. And sometimes you don't know that's what you're reconciling. So it's important to really put words to what these abuses look like so that when someone enters a system that seemingly incentivizes upholding the principles, but doesn't, it incentivizes people to be cowards and not uphold it. They need to say something right away. That's beautifully said. And to say something right away, I mean, first to have it register inside of you. And sometimes people hold back because they don't know exactly what it is that's bothering them and how to put it into words. Well, also, Rachel, you've been trained to not have it register. Yeah. Our gut instincts were dismantled. Right, right. So you have this registration, so the conversations start happening behind the scenes. So in a lot of way, gossip serves a good purpose <laughs> to a certain extent. If, if you're someone who's, who's just, this isn't the right thing, and there was enough people in the organization to know that it wasn't right, and, which is ultimately why it came down so quickly. Because it attracted good people. Exactly. You know, a lot of people will say to me, if we could have just gotten rid of the leader, we would have had a <laughs> wonderful organization. Yeah, it's like, true. Good people who really it's cared, true. you know, can it's we just true. like boom, get rid of the person who's making it toxic and really connect and really do something good. And yeah, there's a lot more potential there with the, with the people involved than with the leader who really actually just stands in the way. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, some people are mad at us even though they think what Keith did was bad, they're like, but you ruined the community. Start it back like, up. Go, go ahead, get back together. You don't Have at it. Have at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I remember one time talking to India and she was mentioning the EMs, the exploration of meaning. As you know, I don't, I'm translating that for the audience, not for you. And I remember saying to her, it's so interesting that you keep using the term EM because I have this sort of therapist shorthand when I'm writing out my notes after a session. And EM to me stands for emotional manipulation. And I thought that is so interesting that things just get turned on their head, that, that an exploration of meaning is, I think, part of what you're also talking about, that you learn to disarm yourself. You learn to look inward as opposed to having an actual reaction to what's happening around you. You have to kind of think, what's wrong with me that I'm, and what, what can I learn from this? Yeah, it's tying your hands all along the way to be able to protect yourself, I think, and have a normal reaction to being mistreated or being 
controlled. I know I'm, I'm just being mindful of the time and I know we just have a little bit of time left, but I know there's so much more to talk about and Mm -hmm. I know we'll talk more, (laughs) but I'm really curious about you as parents, because when you have a child or children who you're then raising after having been in a situation like this, and I'm sure it informs some of the decisions that you make and some of the conversations that you have or what you're sort of even planning to prepare them for in life about holding on to their voice, et cetera. So I'm wondering just how it's infusing itself into your role as parents for your future generation. That is such a good question. I think we've been through a bit of a gamut when Troy was three, when we left and luckily we never immersed him fully into the rainbow program. We, that just didn't exist in Vancouver. We we couldn't. We were traveling. We couldn't, but we did have like a nanny who spoke Spanish. Like the full rainbow program would have been, he would have never rarely been with us and every nanny would have been speaking a different language. We did t- like a tiny bit of Mandarin at the beginning, but it didn't, we just didn't have the infrastructure for rainbow, thank God, because I think that had really diabolical intentions. We'll save that for another episode. <laughs> but there's some principles in Nexium that we kind of taught to him that I some of which I think are good and some of which I think are bad. The good stuff being what I still try to foster and we both try to foster is like raising the child's self-esteem to be able to learn to do things on their own, not do everything for them so that the, I mean, the terminology is kind of Nexium-ish. So I try to like use different words, but that I think is, is solid. What we did do before having ACE is we did a parenting program at the Adlerian Institute, which is not called these as far as I know, but it's just a, you know, a method of, and honestly, actually looking at our own, how we were parented and because I think Nippy had more of like an authoritarian parent. I had more like a hippie left-wing social activist, you know, parents who were more like they didn't believe in punishment. So we have very different ways of being raised. And so like having to kind of come to terms with those methods and how we want to be with our kids. But I think right now, the things that we're just trying to reconcile is like, because he knows, like he knows a fair bit of what happened and just making sure that like he gets it and understands why we did what we did. And hopefully one day we'll be proud of us. But he is. He gets it. He's smart. But I, I think our journey now, like, is just trying to, like, give both of our children a, a place to express themselves and be themselves and not shut them down and to feel like they can express how they feel and to never shame them for that or make them feel bad for that. And also that, like, teach them proper, like, emotional regulation, which sometimes I struggle with because I'm a bit of a stress case, you know, and I, I can have outbursts and... You know, I'm not, I'm not perfect, right? But we so, like, always go in and, and clean it up and they know that we're good self-correctors. Yeah, I think that actually is something one of my one of my therapists taught me is like if I do do something that is not ideal, like yell or, you know, lose my patience or my temper, I immediately acknowledge it. Balance the scale. And don't put it on him. I just say, listen, this I'm I'm so sorry. I'm I didn't <laughs> give myself time for self-care today. I'm stressed out and I did not react properly in that moment. I wish what I wish I could have said is this. I was apologize and and we want to teach him how to like take responsibility for those things, not put it back on him. So I think and he does that too with us. Yeah, he's good. I'm not worried about him. I'm not worried about him. Yeah, he's like, sorry, mom. That wasn't a great way to handle it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. I've heard people say later on in their lives, after their parents have passed, that they never heard the words, I'm sorry. And it makes such an impact because usually those kids of any age know that there was a lot 
that happened to them and they really wish their parents had taken responsibility. They really wish there had been some remorse and some apology. So you're actually offering your kids a gift by saying, I'm sorry. And I acknowledge, and you're also showing them how you grow from an experience and how you're willing to take responsibility, which actually to me comes from a place of confidence I think that's why cult leaders never take responsibility because inside they don't have that. They really can't handle it. And so they always need to make it your fault. You could say, you know what? Yeah, I yelled and then, you know, I, I really didn't handle it well. But if you were a cult leader, you'd say, I yelled, but that's because you, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You'd suddenly whoop, get redirected back onto the other person. I want to make a distinction there because I, uh, this is still something I catch myself doing. Like Troy loves basketball and he sometimes bounces the ball in the house and the neighbors hate it. And I have to be like, I will get short if he doesn't listen, you know, and I could easily say, you're not listening. That's why I'm yelling. Right. Which in many ways is, is it's like the precursors to gaslighting. It's like flipping it back. Right. And I, I have to be so careful as separating it out and like owning my reaction, saying that's not okay. That's not okay way to handle it. Separate thing. Let's talk about the basketball. Okay. This can't happen in the house because of this. And let's talk about it because I feel like the whole, you know, well, back and forth or like the way that kids get dismissed is just so unhealthy, you know? And I, I think that that's like, I don't want him to be defiant against us and then go look for some other community, you know, because I think that's so natural. Like when I see when we talk to our guests as so many of the people we speak to were like individuating, you know, from whatever construct they went through. And I had a great childhood. I had like a, fan, like a fabulous parents. And I still needed to individuate and be like, you guys are therapists, but I found something better. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. I was wrong. But still, the pursuit is a natural one. Of course, you want to find your own thing. I'm wondering also, just as we're finishing up, just in in terms of being a couple, just this is for people listening who they themselves are in organizations or working for companies where there are a lot of divorces because the company needs to be more important than anything else. And so you need to go to the company holiday party and not the Christmas thing happening in your home. How can couples sort of check in with each other, even though you're really not allowed to do that to a certain degree and preserve what they have. You were able to do it, but it takes effort to do it. And you have to kind of work against the system that's in place and be defiant in a really good way, actually. So how are you able to do it for the two of you? In terms of our recovery? Yeah. And just remaining together, even though the forces were, I think, trying to make you be at odds with each other. I mean, for me, it wasn't particular. I mean, we had our, our tough times, but I don't know that the tough times that we had, we wouldn't have had them kind of anyway as a couple, you know? So I kind of recognize that, sure, you marry, you marry someone's character. You don't marry really, I think, too much more than that. I mean, I mean that was never in doubt for me. And we have far much more going for us that I felt was worth nurturing and keeping and and we have a family, and I was right. Right. So it sounds like there was this foundation already. So no matter how they were going to paint, you know, Sarah, or want you to see her or have her see herself and vice versa with you, you still had a sense of who she was and her character. Yeah. And, and also, Rachel, fuck them. Yeah, right. 
You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of where I come from. Fuck them. You don't get to do that. And you don't, you're not going to destroy my family. You're not going to destroy what I'm building. And I'm stronger than you. And you didn't happen to us. We happened to you. You being the cult. The cult. And Keith Raniere. I happened to you. Sarah happened to you. You didn't happen to us. You lied to us. We figured it out. Took a while. Took a lot of our lives. But you're in jail. And you're where you belong because of us. So how you like them <laughs> apples? <laughs> Those are delicious apples. Those are delicious apples. No, but that's um, the truth. And that, I don't have to reframe anything. Yeah. I mean, maybe you got the first punch in and I didn't know it, but you're in jail right now in a small cell fighting for your life. We're exactly where you belong. And I helped put you there. So there's that. There is that. That's very satisfying. Yeah, it yeah. was so satisfying. I think also for me, I'd say like really putting in the effort to like we've both done a lot of therapy. We're in couples counseling. There's work that needs to happen and has been happening to deprogram, like I said at the beginning, like the thing around needs and like expressing and emotions and how to relate in a healthy way. That's something we needed to learn. And we have and we're still learning. <laughs> Hashtag still learning. That was for India. A little shout out for India there. When we joined Nexium, we were both the times type of people who wanted to evolve and grow. And unfortunately, that took a bad turn. But we're still those people. We're still willing to evolve to look at stuff. And at the same time, we've had to be like, we want to evolve, but we also want to embrace who we are and love ourselves and love each other and not be so like hard on ourselves. Because I think that's such a big part of Nexium and most cults. It's like you have to feel like shit at some level to keep buying into the system. I think what Nippy has been really great, at least for me, I'll say is like letting me be okay being happy and, and, and me reminding him that he can enjoy his success. I struggled with that before we went into this thing. Right. But I like mean, now, was, we, it now didn't we get work, to... It didn't even work what I went into. Even when I was successful, I felt like there always had to be more. And, that, and that's always the problem with people who are kind of on that. And having a family that forces you to slow down and take inventory and recognize you're in abundance has been a gift. It's a muscle you got to nurture the same way you muscle the one that w wants to be better and and all that stuff. So, uh, one of our family mottos, mottos is turn your attitude into gratitude. <laughs> yeah. Turn negatives into positives. Yeah, make lemons, make some lemonade. Yeah, exactly right. And and I think you know people like Keith and others are really thieves. I mean, they take away, and so thieves really should be in jail or kept away from society, basically, so they can't keep doing it. Because oftentimes his personality doesn't learn. Like I don't think that he's there. I'm assuming he's not there being self reflective. He's just mad that he was you know, stop. I'm sure he's finding his way to still manipulate the people around him because that is his currency and sort of that that's his skill base. But what you didn't let him take away from you is the really important piece. And that's why you're still together. And that's why you're still developing and growing. And, you know, he couldn't take that away from you either. He derailed it and did it where you had to do it sort of his way. And now you've taken that back which is really good to reclaim, to reclaim your path, to reclaim your relationship, your trust of each other and all of it, you know, just get it all back and not let someone be a thief. Yes. And two things I have to tell you that we did to reclaim. One is that he wrote our original wedding vows. So at, at our five-year anniversary, we renewed our vows in front of our, in front of our, a small audience of our dear friends, which was very reclaiming. And we also, I also had my, my scar removed, my brand removed uh, with plastic surgery. Uh -huh. And that was a very powerful decision for me. I needed it for the first few years as proof. The evidence was on my body. And I think, you know, ultimately, oh God, cry. <laughs> you know, Nippy standing by me 
during the most traumatic, worst time of my life and not leaving when I think Keith probably assumed that if you put his initials on a married woman's body, that that would be enough for a man to be like, fuck this. And Nippy didn't. And I think, you know, I, I, I married his character also. And that, that strength and that solidarity is, is unshakable. So yeah, Keith was wrong. And here we are. <laughs> I'd still like to knock the shit out of him. <laughs> Makes sense. I'd take, I'd take 60 years off his <laughs> sentence. I'd keep the five years probation though. Uh, yeah, I love that part. Got to keep that. <laughs> it's a little dessert at the yeah. end of yeah. Uh, it's so right, <laughs> right. It's delicious. <laughs> and Sarah, that is very, very powerful. And you're right. He couldn't take he couldn't take that away from you, and he couldn't claim you. So good, and so good that the two of you were able to weather this storm. I think then you can go through anything. You've been through this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a nice thing to know because you learn a lot about strength of a relationship when you go through something together and look where you are. So there you have it. It's really nice. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. So it's been a pleasure to, to talk to both of you. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. And obviously we could do it for hours. So you'll have to come on our podcast next week. <laughs> nice. Okay, sure. That sounds like a plan. Let's do that. Amazing. Okay. All right. Good. Good to see both of you and get to know more about your story. And I'm so happy that you are where you are now. And your kids are lucky to have you as models, as parents. That means a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. One more thing before you go. Thank you to Sarah and to Nippy for being on the show. It is so nice to be able to hear from a couple that has weathered a storm like this and has been able to come out and set up a life that feels like a healthier existence where they've been able to move on. They've been able to set up a family and continue on with their relationship in a way that is healthier, where someone is not dictating how they should be with each other, how much contact they have with each other, how much they should trust each other. Someone else is also not dictating how they should look at each other or really how they should even look at themselves. One of the things that was talked about was about all of the diagnoses that people were given in this group, all of the criticisms and the terms used for people, where if people were having probably very natural reactions to things, they were doing their tantrum thing, as they talked about, or their right-wrong thing, or their dependency thing, or that somehow they had deficiencies. It was really interesting to hear when Sarah was talking about how in a relationship, you couldn't just be joyful. You were somehow just covering up your deficiencies. That is really quite amazing. There is something that happens when people will come to me and they will want therapy and they will want to know what they have and what their diagnosis is. And truth be told, sometimes there really isn't a diagnosis. Sometimes people are just going through a hard time. Sometimes people are reacting to things that are difficult or that have become more difficult, but they don't fit enough of the criteria to be given a diagnosis. I know that insurance companies will ask for it. And in order to get reimbursement, you need one. But truth is that for some people, they just don't have one. 
And that's okay. I remember one time working at a place years ago where after you had an initial consult with a client, a new client, you would then have a team meeting with the therapist and the psychiatrist and everyone else on staff. And as part of that, you needed to give them a diagnosis. And the diagnosis was something that would go in their chart. Not only do I, do I not think they have a diagnosis, but I've just met them. So I wouldn't know what diagnosis to give them at this point, because sometimes when people come into therapy, they are reacting to the situation where they're not really showing themselves to be the way they really are, but it might be their first time ever coming to therapy. They might be feeling embarrassed about what they're going to share. They might be withholding for other reasons and and for good reasons, because they don't know the therapist yet. They don't know me yet. They don't know how I'm going to respond to what they're saying, so they're not really opening up yet. And all of that is something that I would respect and give people time to be able to do on their own time and when it feels right for them. But I could imagine within a cultic system, it's not okay to not answer a question. It's not okay to say, you know, I don't really feel like getting into that now. You would be called a lot of things. There was also something that Nippy talked about, about being called defiant. And Sarah talked about it as well. That defiance was something that people were called when they just were not being obedient enough, when they were not being malleable enough. So cults and also abusive relationships do this very sort of gaslighting, mind-bending part of things where they will have you think that you are up to something. They will have you feel like there's something wrong with you when all you're really saying is, hmm, not so fast. Let me take some time to think about this. Or I don't really agree with that. So that's not being defiant. That's just not being obedient. That's not going along to get along. That's you asserting your independent and critical thinking. And in situations that are unhealthy, your independent and critical thinking is usually not going to be welcome. So you're going to leave feeling like there's something inherently wrong with you when really there was something inherently strong about you. And the other part is that Sarah talked about not picking up on the red flags. That happens all the time. But similarly to being involved in a system where you're supposed to diagnose people and call them names and tell them what their problems are and be pretty harsh, there are times that the red flag is that something just doesn't feel right. That on the one hand, you might have been convinced that you're doing this for people's benefit, to help them grow, to help them change, to challenge them. No pain, no gain. So that's also kind of a way to justify mistreating people, I think. But the truth is that when Nippy was talking about gossip being used as a currency, which is very common within cultic groups and also in manipulative relationships, Sarah remembers thinking, hmm, when she was participating in gossiping, is this right? As soon as you have that thought, as soft as it is, as weak as it sounds, it might just be this faint, faint sound in the dark recesses of your brain or your soul, your heart. Listen to it. There's something there. There's something that's telling you that something isn't right or you're not sure. And so when you're not sure, you want to be able to know that you have the luxury of stepping back, of saying, I actually don't want to participate in doing that to someone right now because I'm now wondering 
if this is really helpful or if it's hurting them. I'm now wondering if the things that I've been told to feel about them and to say to them and to make them feel about themselves are correct. And if not, I don't want to say it. And within an unhealthy group and an unhealthy relationship, you will not be given that luxury. You will not be given a chance to step away, to step back, to wait until further notice to see if calling someone that actually helps them or if it makes them feel worse about themselves or kind of more fragmented, unsure. And so if you don't have a chance to follow that voice that is saying, is this right? Then you're in a system that doesn't care if it's right. It should always matter. It was wonderful to talk to Sarah and to Nippy. And I look forward to speaking with them again and being on each other's shows, which is a lot of fun. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.